Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, June 5th, and we're talking about the most absurd earnings beat we've ever seen. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's High Chancellor of Below Averageness, Brian Faroldi. Brian, you have outdone yourself today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I thought you'd appreciate that one. Uh, there's, there's, uh, there's this conjuring up of both royalty and self-deprecation with that one. That one's pretty good. <laughs> I like to confuse people. It's a, it's a, it's a skill. <laughs> um, Brian, this is a big day for you, isn't it? Yes, it is a big day. Uh, today was the last day of my kids getting new assignments at school. Uh, they are not finished yet. Next week is their last week, but it's going to be smooth sailing and fun uh, next week. So the pain that has been uh, school homeschooling is finally starting to be in the rearview mirror. And let me assure you, Dylan, it has been painful. <laughs> well, Brian, how does the, the pain of homeschooling compare to the task of entertaining for summer vacation? Are those are those oh, on par with each other? This is a weird, weird time because I normally dread the end of school. Like it's like, oh God, they're gonna be home all the time. Now, because of the homeschooling, I'm like, God, school, please end. <laughs> so it's a definitely uh, some weird emotions. Yes, I've I've felt very lucky right now, uh, and for the last couple months because you know we've we've had the good fortune of working for a business that's able to be remote and, you know, we're doing great and we're able to keep working and be relatively uninterrupted. You and I are still able to get together and do these awesome conversations that we love doing so much, but also I don't have kids. And so like the, the stay at home, the quarantine, it has felt a lot easier than I think, uh, it has felt for a lot of my friends who have parents and, uh, you're kind of both parent entertainer and doing whatever you normally do during the day. And that's a lot to take on. Yes, I'm used to having the house to myself to be able to think and, and focus, and it hasn't been that way for a couple months, so uh, uh, that's okay. Yeah. Well, I'm just thrilled that you're able to find some peace and quiet so that we can record this episode and <laughs> that uh, there isn't too much noise over at the house. Um, big day for you, Brian, but a big week, and maybe this is just like big quarter, we can put it that way, for Zoom, the video communication stock, perhaps the stock of 2020? Yeah, I think that that's completely fair. This company uh, was doing fabulous before COVID-19, and then it just caught fire, caught the media's attention. The company is uh, was up um, over 200% year-to-date prior to this report, so talking about having some big expectations. And then it actually popped after uh, the company reported earnings. So uh, as you kind of preluded at the top of the show, the numbers were stunning. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this company plenty. And as with any company that goes through an insane amount of growth and attention in a really short period of time, they they have not gone without their speed bumps and their hiccups along the way. Um, A lot of users flooding to this platform, particularly on the free side, and kind of learning how to use it and the company kind of having to adjust to all of that. There have been some security concerns. With all of that going on, though, incredible headline numbers when it comes to their earnings report. Revenue up almost 170% year over year to just under $330 million. The guidance, Brian, was just over $200 million. That's bonkers. It's Bonkers is the word, I think, Dylan, to use there. And yeah, Wall Street was expecting $202 million. So Wall Street was above guidance. The actual result, again, 300 
28 million. Enormous topside uh, uh, beat. That that wasn't all that surprising, given how how much we know that this uh, usage of this company's platform has just exploded. Uh, some other headline numbers from the quarter that uh, I thought were worth highlighting: uh, gross margin actually fell during the period to 69.4 percent uh, in the year ago period. Uh, it was about 81 percent. Zoom CEO and founder Eric Wan. Uh, came out and let investors know that during the middle of the quarter. He basically said, the usage on our platform is exploding. We have to invest like crazy to ensure that we can actually uh, meet it, expect gross margin to decline. So it did decline, still very healthy at 70, uh, almost 70%. Uh, All the company's operating costs up up big time. R&D was up 66%. Sales and marketing up 69%. G&A expenses up 196%. Uh, but even with all those ballooning costs, the revenue growth was so huge that the non-GAAP earnings came in at $0.20 cents per share. That was up 566%. Uh, they were guiding for $0.10, cents and Wall Street was expecting 9 so they doubled the bottom line number two. Yeah. And, you know, it's tough to see a gross margin number go down. I think in the case of Zoom, though, Zoom has had probably the greatest free advertising campaign of the last three months, you know, that, that any company has perhaps ever seen. And they have just become such a large part of the consciousness. I think you're willing to accept a slightly larger, a slight, slightly smaller gross margin in order to uh, enjoy that widespread awareness. And some of that's just, you know, they have free users that are hopping on the platform. They have more usage than they're expecting. They're investing in security. They're doing all of these things to improve the product. 70% gross margins, still pretty darn good. Yeah, not bad, right? How many companies would kill for a 70% gross margin in general, let alone saying, sorry, our gross margin was so terrible this quarter. Uh, and they and they called out the kind of why on the conference call. They said when the pandemic started, their own data centers were overwhelmed. They just could not handle the volume to scale uh, fast enough. So they did outsource a whole bunch of that volume uh, to their partners. Uh, most notably, uh, Amazon Web Services is, is running some of this. They actually called out Oracle as another company that they outsourced uh, some of it to. They did guide for gross margins to return to normal eventually as they continue to invest in their platform and build it out, but still very healthy numbers. It would be crazy for them to go through this kind of growth and not have it hit their business in some way. You know, for all the positive numbers that we're going to talk about here, there has to be some sacrifice somewhere, and it happens to be with their gross margin. Uh, this is a SaaS business, essentially, right? And and the number that we always look at for SaaS businesses, Brian, that expansion rate, that net expansion rate number, how did it clock in for Zoom this quarter? So they didn't call out the specific number, but they did say that net dollar expansion was over 130% for the eighth consecutive quarter in a row. And on the call, when they were talking about their revenue uh, growth for the, for, the, for the period, they did say that 71% of the top line uh, expansion was driven by new customers, 29% came from uh, existing ones. But again, a number of 130% shows us that even their existing customers we're buying a lot more from Zoom, which is uh, one of the reasons that we absolutely love the SaaS uh, business model in general. Some of the numbers that um, I thought were pretty exciting, the number of customers that are going to spend $100,000 with this company uh, in the next uh, over the trailing 12 months jumped 90% to 769. They added 128 of those customers uh, sequentially in just, in just that period. Um, and a nutty number here is the number of 
the minutes that people are using their platform. At the end, uh, at the beginning of the year, they were expecting the for the year to do about a hundred billion total minutes on Zoom, uh, based on April's run weight, two trillion with a T. That's a twenty-fold increase in in a, in a matter of months. Stunning. Those are just staggering numbers. And I think to go back to that expansion rate figure we were talking about, from a transparency perspective, I would really like for them to break that out. That's one critique I think I have is, you know, like it would be really good to know what the number is. Um, We like getting, because it's such a vital number and and it's so descriptive of what's going on with the business, the specifics, I'll settle for over 130% because the number is just so darn gaudy anyways. Um, But you think about all of the people that are flocking to this platform with what's going on. This number is saying, even without those folks, we'd be enjoying about 30% growth. All of this other stuff that's coming onto the platform is just additional growth that will wind up becoming probably, you know, some portion of that loyal recurring growth down the road too. Yeah. And, and I'm with you there. Although I will say uh, another company that I uh, know and follow, uh, Autodesk, they don't give us the exact number either. What they, what they say is we're targeting between 110% and 120%. And whenever they're within that range, they said, yes, we're within that range. The goal there is to focus on the business model is working, not necessarily to get pinned down on one number and whether it was up sequentially or down sequentially. So, um, I agree with you. I like more numbers more than I, I, I prefer them to say we had 142 or 137, but overall, 100, more than 130%, fantastic. Yeah, I'm always going to nitpick, though. I want the number. I want the data, Brian. Um, and while we didn't get that, we got plenty of other good numbers. Uh, deferred revenue for this business grew 270% to over $500 million. RPO, which is probably a, a metric that we need to explain because, I mean, frankly, you and I were a little bit confused by it, um, also grew pretty dramatically. Yeah, this is basically, think of it as, as kind of their ba- backlog. It's remaining performing uh, obligations. Uh, this number is more than $1.1 billion. This was up 184%. And they did say that over the next 12 months, they expect to be able to recognize about 72% of that number. Uh, so about $772 million uh, will be converted uh, into revenue. So best to think of that basically uh, as a backlog. And Dylan, how is this for an impressive figure? Free cash flow. So the, the amount of cash that was generated at the business uh, after subtracting capital expenditures uh, was $252 million, up from $15 million in the year ago peering. Again, stunning. Yeah. And, and all these numbers are telling us basically what happened. You know, we have that, that RPO number that is kind of a signal of what will come for this business. Um, the idea of deferred revenue, also a little bit of like a forward-looking number. But the most part, we've been looking at quarterly numbers that describe the quarter behind us. What is perhaps even more impressive is what the company offered in terms of guidance going forward and what they are looking at for their full year 2020. Uh, just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, again, so everything kind of took off in March. That's when you know COVID-19 stay-at-home orders really kicked into high gear. April was kind of the peak. And so the, the, the quarter that we're in right now, it's just going to be uh, another monster, uh, not monster one for the company. So they said uh, to expect revenue in the current quarter to be about 495 to 500 million, up 241% year over year. So that's the sequential acceleration. Uh, again, just amazing. Prior to that, they were calling for 199 million to 201 million. So again, 
They're now calling for 495. They were previously calling for 200 million. Wall Street was also modeling for about 223. So their midpoint of their guidance is more than double what Wall Street was previously predicting. Yeah. Amazing. And, and, it's, and it's worth emphasizing. I mean, this is a business that was already growing quickly. You go back to pre-COVID and the period that they reported ending January 31st, the three months ended there, which is their Q4, they posted $188 million in revenue, uh, up from $105 million the year prior. So this was already a business that was really moving, and you know the the valuation implied that it was a high growth business. And what we've seen is already insane growth rates getting even more ridiculous. Yep, and that that growth that's expected to trickle down to the bottom line too. They're calling for about forty five cents in earnings per share, up from ten cents in the prior period. Wall Street was expecting uh, ten cents. Uh, uh, previously, they're now they're now expecting about forty one cents. But even the numbers that we're seeing now are beating Wall Street's guidance, which was already raised. So just amazing. <laughs> and the full year picture gets. I mean, it's it's more of the same. I think we're going to say amazing, ridiculous, <clears throat> bonkers four hundred times during this podcast. But for the full year, the company expects revenue to be in the range of one point seven seven to one point eight billion dollars which would be up approximately 185% to 189% year over year. You don't hear numbers like that often. No, just obscene. <laughs> I mean just obscene, Dylan. Uh, their old guidance was 900 million to 915, now almost 1.8 billion. That's a doubling. And the bottom line is also going to be uh, uh, absurdly good. They're calling for earnings per share of $1.21 to $1.29, uh, more than double what they were previously uh, projecting and more, more than double what Wall Street was expecting. Yeah. And, and if we go back to when this company IPO'd, and you and I did this prospectus show, as we love to do when companies go public, where you know we get a look at the S1 filing and we can really dig into the business, the narrative with this company was fast-growing, unicorn, and oh, by the way, they're profitable. And it was one of those rare moments where we saw a company that had really impressive growth, uh, gross margins and the ability to scale become even more profitable than they currently were, but they were currently profitable. Um, to take something like that and then light it on fire and then throw gasoline onto it and just say, grow, 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 based on current conditions, I don't know that anyone could have seen these kind of numbers coming. And as expected from as amazing as these numbers are, Wall Street was basically forced to upgrade its price targets across the board. I mean, we saw uh, almost, what's that, uh, almost, almost a dozen analyst firms come out and up their numbers uh, from, say, the hundreds range to the 200 range. My favorite upgrade, though, uh, or price target increase comes from Goldman which has the company rated as a sell and they were and even though they had raised a sell they increased their price target from 90 to 150 uh, but all of that forced activity certainly lit some fire underneath the stock so understandable by why even after the numbers when the numbers came out as impressive as they were and as high as the expectations were that the stock still popped post earnings right and and i think Prior to this, there was there were some very real concerns about what is this company's valuation 
really backed by because this has been one of the pure play coronavirus stay-at-home stocks, and it's been so in the news. You worry about the hype getting a little bit too far ahead of the stock and the valuation getting crazy. Uh, it's it's a valuation of about $56 billion for the whole company right now, but of course, we're up pretty dramatically. I mean, over the past month, even after a little dip after they announced these earnings, uh, shares are still up about 40%. So there's been crazy appreciation. I could see why the street and a lot of people, myself included, were a little skeptical of whether the business could live up to this valuation. It seems like certainly for the next nine months, uh, business is going to be booming for them. Yeah, and that's exactly what they said uh, on the earnings call. While they did give us some forward guidance for both the uh, Q3 uh, and Q4, one thing that we did hear from them was that basically April was the peak, uh, was the absolute peak of demand, or at least the peak so far, uh, but given that governments have started to ease shelter in uh, in place uh, orders, it's natural to assume that the, the company is going to uh, not benefit from that. But they did come out and say that they're projecting that the third quarter and the fourth quarter with year are basically going to be consistent with what they saw in the second quarter. So not only has the floor been raised to a very, very high level, but they're expecting that to persist in the third and fourth quarter. So that's got to be a bullish sign uh, and better than you would expect if you were someone that was, if you believed prior to this that this was just a one-time thing and it was going to spike up and then it was going to spike back down. Management says essentially the gains are sustainable. Yeah. And that's the ultimate question and kind of the existential threat to this business is it is so center stage and so of the moment right now. There are a lot of free users that are hopping into this. There are also a lot of smaller businesses that are starting to use it and maybe some larger enterprise clients that didn't have a video conferencing product available to employees and decided to give Zoom a go. And the concern is, are those people going to stick around? You know, Are these incredible acquisition numbers that we're seeing going to continue? Maybe not, but are they going to be able to service those customers once they have them and prove their value, wind up building out these long, sticky relationships that we love to see? Some numbers in this report would suggest that that might be happening. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, and uh, how, how often have we heard from so many companies that are basically saying that they're going to be taking jobs that were in person and they're making them permanently uh, remote. And while we don't expect that to happen with uh, every job, certainly some will. And I've also heard anecdotally that a lot of people are saying, well, I'm still going to go into the office, but I'm only going to go in three times a week or four times a week, and they're still going to be doing one or two days remotely. If that's the case, the need for Zoom is still there. Uh, So I do think that this is going to result in permanent this is a this is a permanent paradigm shift for this company yeah i think that all of this has forced people to really evaluate how they're working and it's forced you know companies and you know hr departments to really think about what makes the most sense and brian to your point you know say you and i work in the same office and you come in 3 days a week and i come in 3 days a week we might only be in the office at the same time one day of those 5 days of the week and so you know we're still going to need to use zoom um and you couple more stay at home with the reality that more businesses are multinational. You have people in different areas, different offices, different time zones. Um, The need for these products is not going away. This might be just the huge step change in adoption of this technology that gets us to more people hopping in and and deciding to pay Zoom some money to use it. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's worth pointing out, one of the questions we constantly get about Zoom, or at least I've seen uh, in my Twitter feed, is, does this company have a moat? 
And it is fair, right? Uh, we've seen how many companies, Facebook and Google and Microsoft Teams basically coming out and said, yep, we have a video solution too. Uh, you can go on uh, and use it. But I think when we did the S1 show, uh, we concluded that the reason that Zoom had a moat and the reason that Zoom uh, was taking so much market share in what was already a crowded market from the get-go was that it was the only one that was built from the ground up with a video-first mentality. And they actually have some special special technology that allows videos to happen uh, even when there's significant internet uh, packet loss. Uh, so you can still get uh, your, your message across. And again, anecdotally, my my kids have been doing uh, Google Meets with uh, with their their classrooms, and I've heard from the teachers no, numerous times to say once it gets above a certain number of users, the quality just plummets. Uh, so if you need to Zoom for if if you need a video solution that is high quality, reliable, and can support lots of users, to me Zoom is still the premier name. Yeah, I remember when we did that prospectus show, we were talking about the advantages that this business has. And one of the things that really popped out to me looking at that S1, and I'm actually going to read directly from it right now, our architecture is video first, cloud native, and optimized to dynamically process and deliver reliable, high quality video across devices. Boom. That says it. They're competing against a lot of people who have been in this space for a lot longer, haven't necessarily developed cloud-first applications, and that's why their product tends to work a lot better. If you're not convinced, based on just the description and the fact that we're using it right now uh, to be able to do this, I think we can also pull some data. And granted, this is uh, you know data that has been collected recently, and so uh, you know it's, it's a little bit of a scramble to get this stuff together. I've seen it from several different outlets. Um, some names that I don't know it as well, so I've kind of cobbled it from a couple different places. But no matter who you look at when you are looking at web conferencing, Zoom is number one in market share. After them, there's GoToWebinar, there's Cisco WebEx, and they are kind of jockeying for second and third. It'll depend on whatever data set you're looking at. But those three are the big three. They command the market. I've seen Zoom at 30% market share. I've seen Zoom at 40% market share. Either way, they are number one by a healthy margin. And they are also right there with the other big players, Cisco, Microsoft, LogMeIn, in Gartner's Magic Quadrant. And so Gartner is this tech consulting firm. They do a lot of market research, and they look at all of these different enterprise segments to see you know, who is leading the way, who are the visionaries that's going to shape what all these software markets look like. Those are the four that they put in that Magic Quadrant of not only leading a market, but ultimately shaping the direction that it's going to go in. And Zoom is very highly ranked. Of those four, I think it's maybe second. And so not only are we seeing that it's a leader in terms of market share, but it is probably someone that's going to position where that web conferencing market ultimately goes. And it's also worth remembering that the founder of Zoom was previously working at Cisco, and he was embarrassed to go into work, uh, and he was in charge of their video product. He wanted to make it better, which would require them to build it from the ground up to be different, and he was told no. He became so frustrated that he left to found Zoom because he wanted to build it from the ground up. And if you look at their numbers and their leadership position, it's clear that he was right. Yeah. And I think there are going to be some people who naturally question, you know, okay, you threw some names out there. I haven't heard you talk about Microsoft. Uh, Well, we talked about this a little bit when we did our show on Slack last week, but there is this tension between the bundled experience that comes with, you know, an enterprise having access to everything Microsoft does under the sun and these pure play software applications that do all of those things 
individually and possibly do it better. And I think there are certain services that a lot of companies are willing to pay up for because the experience is better. So far, it seems like Slack and Zoom are able to fall into that category. Yep. I mean, we've seen that exactly at The Fool, right? Yeah. I, I, the Fool wasn't, this is, uh, The Fool was using previous video conferencing solutions when Zoom came out and we tried it, switched over to it. <laughs> Why? It was better and it worked. Yeah. Uh, we're not the only company that has experienced that. Yep. I have access to Teams and I've never used it. You know, I think that that says a lot. Um, and we get the benefit. I mean, selfishly, we get the benefit of being able to kick the tires on a lot of software solutions before we even necessarily look at them as investments. And it's really fun to look and, and talk with our IT department and see what winds up being adopted. I mean, Zendesk is one of those things. Like, we use it at the Fool. And we were using at the Fool before I started following the company as a stock. But knowing and, and kind of getting in there firsthand and seeing what it looks like, seeing how much our customer service folks love it, the ticketing system it made me a believer in a space that I probably didn't know as well and wouldn't have been as uh, convinced of their market leadership in. Zoom's kind of the same thing for me. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and there is something to be said for a company that is hyper-focused on just one thing versus a company that offers that same thing uh, as a bundle to another product. Yeah. Um, you are a shareholder of Zoom, right, Brian? I am sadly not. No? Uh, even though I absolutely love the S1 and Eric Wan, uh, this is another one that's being value conscious uh, has come back uh, to bite me. So I am not yet a shareholder of Zoom, I guess I should say. Yeah, so we are both uh, FOMOs of, <laughs> of, of Zoom or, or people that have missed out, I should say, on Zoom. Um, and, you know, there are going to be people that say, this valuation is something that's worth buying. Um, man, it's a quality business. And they, they've experienced some incredible growth. I'd love to see them continue to do it. The product seems great. Um, I will give the boilerplate advice that I give with positions in general. You start small and you, you really start small with something that has enjoyed so much share price appreciation in such a short period of time. But on the flip side, it does show you um, one, of the, one of the metrics that we use to judge this company is the price to sales ratio. And boy, has it been high and boy, does it keep getting higher. But when they come out and said, oh, by the way, oh, by the way, our sales, yeah, they're double what we thought. That really takes that price to sales ratio down in a hurry. Yeah. And, and businesses that are growing it 80-ish percent like they were before all of this happened deserve a premium. Businesses that are growing at over 100% deserve an even bigger premium. <laughs> yes. So High quality companies in general deserve traded a premium. And there's no doubt in my mind that Zoom is a very high quality company. Yeah, we, we believe that winners win. And I think what we have seen would be kind of a five-year period of winning for Zoom collapsed into about three months because the adoption has just accelerated so quickly out of necessity. Um, that is not to say that the, the story is done for them, if anything. I think we're moving more and more to a world where this type of technology is important. They just need to hold on to all these customers that they've brought in. Completely. And we've, and it's not just Zoom, we should point out, that's doing so well. How many software as a service companies have we seen just explode uh, year, year to date and just, and just skyrocket? Uh, but to, to your point, we've seen essentially years worth of SaaS adoption get pulled forward and compressed into weeks or month timeframes. When you, when you factor that in, perhaps the valuations that we're seeing today are not as extreme as they appear if you're just looking at the numbers because, again, so much adoption has been pulled forward. I think that's a good point, Brian, because we've, we've so often been stuck looking at old valuation paradigms and new 
business approaches and platforms, right? You know, the idea of paying 20 times sales for a company uh, 15 years ago would be a little ludicrous. Uh, the idea of doing it now when you have, you know, uh, some, some businesses with net expansion rates that are 130, 140, um, they are able to do gross margins of 85, 90%. That's a fundamentally different business than what we've seen, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yep, it's the best business model I've ever seen in my entire life, and and when you look at the numbers of these companies consistently, it's just like wow, they're just stunning. Yeah, so I think we need to do that that transition to SaaS show at some point because you pitched that to me, and I was like, I, I want to do it, but. I don't have the preparation time to be able to do that today. Let's focus on Zoom's earnings, but maybe that's something we'll hit in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, sure. We've seen, uh, just reading through conference calls of uh, many of these great companies, we're seeing again and again executives saying all this uh, innovation and all this adoption has just been pulled forward. So it would be fun to summarize that. All right, Brian, before we wrap up today's show, I wanted to take a quick listener question. And this one comes from Jack, who wrote in. Uh, and folks, if you want us to hit one of your questions, industryfocus.fool.com, or you can hit us on Twitter, at MF Industry Focus. Um, Jack says, I'm a massive fan of Motley Fool Industry Focus podcast. Thanks, Jack. Listens every single day. Uh, enjoys, oh, enjoys the Friday mailbag show. And it sparked a question. We love doing mailbag shows in particular. So, so write in for those. Um, a little bit about me. I am 20 years old from Pittsburgh. And he goes on to mention that he's studying finance and econ and will be interning in the industry. The question is, what is the optimal asset allocation for a 20-year-old? I keep up with the stock market and follow a lot of companies. I do not know what the best stock, bond, ETF, index fund allocation would be for me right now. I have a good chunk of money to invest, and I'm going to invest all at once here in the next couple of weeks. If there were any way for you to answer this question for, on an upcoming show, that would be amazing. Thanks for your time. Um, love this. I think we need to give the caveat that we cannot give personalized financial advice, Brian. Um, but when I hear 20-year-old thinking about investing, that, that's someone who's already way ahead of the game. Yes. If, if you're thinking about investing and you're following companies at age 20 and you're asking about asset allocation, boy, are you light years ahead of where I was when I was 20. So congratulations for you for even having a thought to ask that question. Yeah. And, and that means that you have a lot of time for compounding to work on your side and you have a lot of time to weather economic uncertainty. Um, you know, what we've seen over the last couple of months, we've, we've seen some recovery. That's awesome. Um, but that, that's the kind of thing that's a lot scarier to someone who is in their late 50s, early 60s, and is nearing retirement, nearing the point where they're going to start drawing on that money that they've put away. It's a lot easier if you're in your 20s to look at that and say, you know, this might not be money that I need for another 5, 10 years if it's money to buy a house, or you know, decades if it's retirement money. And so for someone in this position, I think the key is think a little bit about what you want that money to go towards. If it's money that you're saying, eh, like 10 years from now, I might want to be able to buy a house or, you know, I plan on having kids and I'd like to be able to have it grow a little bit and then put some of that into education funds, you put it somewhere different than you would saying this is retirement money. So make that decision. And then I'm a big fan of the indexes, especially early on, if you don't have a lot of other money invested, certainly as a base. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to go wrong putting your money into a broad-based index like the S&P 500 or a, uh, or a total stock market index. You can put that there and then start to make small decisions with individual stocks. I will say, Brian, for me, it's a lot easier for someone that's younger to focus more on stocks and not worry as much about the bond fixed income side of the market. 
Yes, that's exactly right. If you have decades ahead of you that you'll be working, it's much. It, it makes a lot more sense to have a much higher uh, allocation to uh, to stocks. And again, we can't give uh, individual advice, but uh, one of the things that I recently did was I sketched out my asset allocation strategy for the rest of my life, uh, and I just did it as an exercise that got me thinking. Now, in 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 this uh, viewer's case, we don't know so much. We don't know. Do you have any? Debt? Do you? Are you going to be buying a house soon? Are you going to be moving soon? Do you have an emergency fund? We don't know any of that. Um, so uh, you have to keep those things in mind. Those things are, are are important when you're talking about should I invest in general or should I use my money uh, for those kind of things. But for myself, um, I have basically set it up so that I am going to be ninety to ninety nine percent stocks. Basically, from now until I'm within 10 years of retiring, and I put that number that in quotes because I have no idea what that even means. I can't ever see myself not working, uh, but you know that's my plan as of right now. And with, when, once I'm within 10 years of needing the money, then I'm going to start to layer in bonds and other fixed income things on top of that. Uh, and then once I get to a retirement date, my goal is to basically have 10 years worth of expenses, either in cash or bonds, and everything else outside of that number uh, still devoted to stocks. That's something that I'm comfortable with and that fits my situation, but this 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 decision about your uh, your asset allocation it's different for everybody depending on a huge number of factors, including your risk tolerance. Uh, but in general, the longer you have, the longer you can put money away for, the higher exposure you want to equities. Yeah, and and one of the easy ways to get something that maps out that allocation switch over time is to look at some target date funds. Uh, these are things that we'll look at roughly when you're thinking about retiring. And then over time, we'll say, all right, we're looking at a retirement date of 2050, 2060. We're going to be more in stocks for this. Um, and as you get closer and closer, you know, say year 2045, that fund is going to have a lot more bonds in it over time. What I will say with target date funds, I'm a fan. I, I own some target date funds. Um, they tend to go into bonds a little bit earlier than I think Brian would have sketched out with his personal allocation. Um, just pulling up one now, uh, the 2030 fund is about 30% bonds. That's a, that's a Vanguard target date fund. And even some of the ones that are further out, I think probably have a higher chunk in bonds than most people realize. So you got to look at the allocations and make sure that it's something you're comfortable with. But those are an attractive option if you want to be able to go a little bit more conservative as you get older and not have to manage it quite as much. Yeah, and and if you if you think that that is too conservative or too aggressive, you can always change the date by five years, right? <laughs> so if you want to be more aggressive, just pretend you're retiring five years later. If you want to be make more conservative, just pretend you're you're uh, retiring five years sooner. So yeah, in general, uh, target date retirement funds uh, that do all that asset allocation work for you are a fantastic innovation. I think it's one of the places where it's okay to lie about your age. You know, you can, you can you can decide to push things out and be young at heart a little bit longer if that's what you want with a target date fund, Brian. You just got to make sure you know what you're doing. That's right. That's right. I love that. Well, Brian, thanks so much for hopping on today's show, talking Zoom with me. Thanks for inviting me back, Dylan. Two weeks in a row. This is incredible. Oh, I or think I think this is just becoming the thing. I mean, I'm having too much fun with you. <laughs> Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions, you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com, or you can tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you want more stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today. It's Friday, so we're playing things out with checks and balances by full-time fool Burke Ingrafia. For Brian Froley, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and fool on. I've got a million dollars. It's hypothetical. Large amount in my bank account. It's parenthetical. The money I'm made of is theoretical. So in theory, I've got it good. My fat wallet is on a diet. My balance sheet is lopsided My income statement is keeping silent But let's keep one thing understood I need checks I need balances Life's a mess With financial challenges Checks and balances When things get tough Do you do it for money Or do you do it for love My cold hard cash is soft and tropical my deep pockets are merely topical i hit the big time it was microscopical but don't you get it i am no fool i own a bank i call him piggy brought home the bacon he got a little wiggy cracked him open what a pity his inner life was pitiful i need checks I need balances, life's a mess With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money? Or do you do it for love? I know a cheapskate always has a headache Trying to get something for free None more wiser is the miser Always lives in misery I'm cashing in on Triple coupons Soup kitchen's calling Saying the soup's on I sing for my supper And get my groove on I still know how to have fun I need checks I need balances Life's a mess With financial challenges Checks and balances When things get tough Do you do it for money Or do you do it for love Always has a headache Trying to get something for free None more wiser Is the miser Always lives in misery I own a bank I call him Piggy Brought home the bacon He got a little wiggy Cracked him open What a pity His inner life was pitiful I need checks I need balances, life's a mess With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money? Or do you do it for love? Do you do it for money? Or do you do it for love?
some names that I don't know it as well. Tyler, so turn that down. Different places, but no matter who. 